And let's take our Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 7. Fun having kids in here, isn't it? (laughs) Revelation chapter 7, as we come to this chapter, (laughs) chapter 6 sort of leaves us feeling afraid. Um, It's interesting, I was commenting to the staff in our staff meeting this week, preaching a passage like Revelation chapter 6, people in the congregation sort of look like their ears are pinned back, you know? Wow, those plagues, those, those judgments from God, um, they're, they're overwhelming. In fact, at the close of the sixth chapter, when all of the people are fleeing for their lives and calling on the hills to fall on them and the caves to collapse on them, they leave it with a question. And the question is right there in that 17th verse. And it's this, for the great day of their wrath, referring to, of course, God and to the Lamb of God, for the great day of their wrath has come, who can stand? That's the question that that we're left with, Who, who will survive? Who will be able to make it through such a horrible judgment that's going to come upon the world? Well, in the seventh chapter, we have a glimmer of hope. You see, what we find so often in Scripture, in the passages of Scripture that talk about the wrath of God and the judgments that God must bring upon a sinful world, there are always those refreshing glimmers of hope. In some of the Bible studies that we've been going through this year in the seniors' Bible study and then on my Wednesday night studies, we've We've been going through Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you read some of the passages in those prophets, and you look and you say, wow, you know, the, the wrath of God is something as it's described in these passages. But then sandwiched in between those judgments, there's always hope. God has a heart that wants to forgive, that wants to extend grace, and certainly that's what we find as we come to Revelation chapter 7. So as we come to this text, we find those who stand during the tribulation. And basically, there are two groups. The first group that is mentioned is a group that will come out of Israel. And as we come to this, we find that there's been this rapid succession of judgments by God in chapter 6. People find natural disasters, they find war, they find plague, they find all of these terrible things that are coming crashing down on them. But then as we come to this seventh chapter, this is what we find. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or against any tree. Now, what we find here in chapter 7 is an interlude, a, a pause, if you will, in the judgments that are unfolding as the seals of the scroll of God are broken. 
If you remember, earlier in the fifth chapter, there was a scroll that was in the hand of God, and that scroll had seals. And with the breaking of each one of those seals in chapter 6, there was a judgment. But then there's a, a stoppage to that. And we have chapter 7. Now, what is described for us is God bringing a stillness on the earth. When it says that there were four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, it's talking about angels who have responsibilities in each of the directions, north, south, east, west. And what these angels do is stop everything. And the stoppage is so stark that even the wind ceases to blow. Now, when there's a calmness like this, for those who hope in God, there is that hope that maybe there's a brief reprieve, a rest from the things that are happening. But for those who do not believe in God, that rest can be an eerie stillness. We've just been through the ringer. What's next? I think it works both ways for both groups. But then we come to the second verse. And then in the second verse it says this, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who have power given to them to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, as we come to verses 2 and 3, there is something that transpires during that stillness. And what transpires is this. There are people that God will seal during the judgment. Now, what does it mean that God seals these people? As we saw with the scroll and the seals, the seals represent all of the authority of the one who presses the seal. It also indicates the ownership of the one. Remember, a, a seal was often brought together with a piece of wax, and there would be a signet ring, and the king would take his signet ring, and he would place it on the wax seal, and it meant that the authority of the king was behind this. No one can open the seal who is not authorized. When it says in this text that God is going to seal people, what he's communicating is this, God is going to put all of his authority, all of his power behind protecting a group of people that will be described for us in the upcoming verses. You see, had God not protected them, they would not survive the terrible plagues, the terrible things that are coming. They are God's people under God's protection. So this is what John is describing for us in this text, this group of people protected by God. He puts a supernatural protection over them. But then we come to verses 4 through 8. And in verses 4 through 8, we see this sealing of the tribes of Israel. And we find who these people are that are sealed in verses 1 through 3. And notice they're described in verse 4 in this way. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, there are some cults that take this number, 144,000, and they confuse it. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult that has some very strange and confusing teachings concerning the 144,000. We don't need to speculate. We don't need to guess. We don't need to question who this 144,000 are because it's spelled out for us right here in the book of Revelation where there should be no confusion. Look at what it says. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Now, look at the next statement. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So what do we know from God's Word about this 144,000 that will be sealed, protected by the very power and authority of God? What we know, first of all, is this, their number. I believe this is a literal number, and I believe that what the Word of God is teaching us is this, God sees to His promise to Israel that a nation will survive, and that nation will be the foundation of His kingdom. Israel had the promises of God throughout the Old Testament that were made to Abraham and Moses and David, and those promises are being fulfilled in the end times. But there has to be a surviving group of people to inherit those promises, and that's who this 144,000 people are. They're Israelites protected by God. In fact, in verses 5 through 8, we see a list of 12 tribes and 12,000 people from each one of these tribes. Now, if you do your math, 12 times 12,000 is 144,000, exactly. So these tribes are mentioned, and look at verses 5 through 8. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Iskar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. These were all sealed. Now, as we look at this text, this can be a little confusing. Who are these tribes? When we look in the Scripture, there are 19 lists of the 12 tribes of Israel, and guess what? On occasion, those tribes are comprised of different tribes. There's a little bit of confusion sometimes as to why certain tribes are included and certain tribes are excluded. In this list, we do not see the tribe of Dan mentioned. Sorry to Dan Martin and Dan Sexton. This tribe of Dan isn't included, and there's tons of speculation. I mean, you read some of the commentaries, and they get very creative in the explanations as to why certain tribes are included and certain tribes are excluded. We also find that the tribe of Joseph is mentioned, and in many of the lists, sons of Joseph were mentioned, but not Joseph himself. So, listen, rather than me speculating along with all of the rest, because you have to have thick commentaries when you write one, so you have to come up with a lot of explanations. Listen, if the Word of God doesn't give us an explanation, I don't think we should create one. God is very good at explaining what He means. 
What we do know is these tribes that are mentioned here will add up to 144,000, and this 144,000 will be protected by God. And these are a unique 144,000. You see, when you get to Revelation chapter 14, there is further discussion about this 144,000. And the implication of this is this, that these are followers of Jesus, that these are converted Jews. Um, I like to even call them completed Jews. They follow the Lamb. Look at what is said in Revelation chapter 4, verse 14. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, I believe speaking of immorality, okay? They have not become immoral with the rest of the world. They are virgins. It is these now look at this, who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are followers of Jesus. We know in Revelation the title Lamb belongs to Jesus. So what are these 144,000 going to do? What I believe they do as described in the book of Revelation is this. They fulfill what Israel was supposed to do. Israel as a nation, when they were called out to be the people of God, had the responsibility of sharing with the world who God is. The idea was they were to be such devoted followers of God that the rest of the world would look upon them and be drawn to God through their testimony. Now, we all know that Israel failed in that commission, in that calling. This 144,000 will be faithful will be sealed, will be cared for by God. And their job, if you will, is to share the gospel with a lost world. When it's described for us, it shares with us in verse 3 once again that they will have the seal of the servants of God on their foreheads. Now, it's intriguing as we look into the book of Revelation, there will be these devoted followers of God who have the seal of God on their forehead, in some way there will be an expression of them being followers of God. This is something people in the first century would have understood. You see, in the first century, then when there were devotees to certain religions, they would put the mark of their religion right on their forehead so that everywhere they went, people would see right on their forehead the most prominent part of their head. People would see they're a follower of that particular cult or that particular religion. Now, this is not a man-made tattoo or something like that that's going on their forehead. This is something that God places on them as a testimony to the world that these are mine, I own them, I am protecting them. And so they will have this responsibility of sharing the gospel with a lost world. And believe me, during the time of the tribulation, there is a lost world that desperately needs to hear about the grace of God. You know what stands out to me? In the book of Revelation, is that God's grace is always operative. He shows grace in sealing this 144,000. Nothing is stated about them deserving to be sealed or protected by God. God does it by His choice. He seals them. He protects them. But more than that, their responsibility of sharing the gospel with a lost world speaks to the fact that even in this time of wrath, God is saying to a lost world, there is still hope. There is still the possibility of a relationship with me. Even though you have spurned me and rejected me and committed yourselves to evil, turn to me. 
and you will find my grace. That's something that we need to carry to a lost world, that message of truth, that the grace of God is always there. Turn to it, and you will find the grace of God given to everyone and anyone. That's a beautiful part of this passage. But then we come to another group. And the next group that we find mentioned who is spared by this sealing of God, this protection of God, this deliverance from the tribulation, are the saints who are martyred. Look at verse 9, and it says this, And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, this group that is mentioned dressed in white was mentioned earlier in the sixth chapter. And if you remember in the sixth chapter, starting at verse 9, they were described as those souls that had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had given. So these are saints who have been martyred during the tribulation. So some of you may be wondering, now what in the world is pastor talking about when he's saying that these are delivered from the tribulation? How can he say that they're standing? Well, they're standing before the throne of God. They did not cease to exist. You see, from our perspective, when somebody suffers death, that is the worst of all possible outcomes. But I would submit to you that going through the tribulation, experiencing the wrath of God is a far worse outcome than being martyred and going into the presence of God and being delivered from all of these things. That's what these saints are experiencing. They're described with such beauty in this ninth verse. It says that there was a great multitude Many people will say that nobody will be saved during the tribulation. I think Revelation chapter 7 differs with that. There's a great number of people that can't even be counted from every tribe, every nation, from all of the peoples and all of the languages. There will be people who find the Lamb of God during the tribulation. And these people, because of their faith will face martyrdom. They will be killed for their faith. Many tortured and killed. But here's the beauty of what we find in God's Word. The worst that man can do to us is take our body. God preserves the soul. These are people who have their soul preserved by God. And notice They're doing something. They are clothed in white, and they have palm branches in their hands. This is a heavenly worship service that they're engaged in. The robes symbolize the purity and the fact that they have been cleansed. And as we'll see a little bit later in this text, they've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. But they are doing something as well. They have palm branches 
in their hands. Now, what do we celebrate on Palm Sunday? We celebrate the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, right? And something that the people cried out, Hosanna. Anybody know what that means? Come on, anybody? We sing it every year. Save us, right? Here are these saints in heaven worshiping at the throne of God, and rather than crying out, save us, verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They don't have to cry out, save us. They've already been saved. They've already experienced the deliverance of God. And here they are before the throne of God, rejoicing and praising Him for their salvation. That's the people who stand during the tribulation in the presence of God. It's a wonderful passage. It's a beautiful picture of God's protection. And these people, having their white robes, palm branches, crying out to God with all of their heart and praise, are joined with others. Look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. This is the scene in heaven. Those who have been delivered in the presence of God, lifting up His name, worshiping Him from all that is within them. And then verse 12 saying, Amen. Now, the word Amen means, yes, it is so. Salvation belongs to our God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again and again and again, day after day, moment after moment, people are praising God for their salvation. Now, for some of us, we look at that and we think, well, doesn't that get redundant? I would submit to you that with an infinite God who has done amazing and infinite things in saving us, each day will be an education in how God's salvation was wrought through the power and the strength of Almighty God. And so, all of heaven is looking on and saying blessings and glory to God. He deserves to be lifted up, to be raised up, and eternity won't be enough time to express our love and appreciation. And again, this isn't something that's forced upon them. They're not being told, hey, say this stuff to God right now. This is a response that comes from the heart. Just like when we see something awesome, we go, wow. Nobody has to tell us to say it, we just do. So, as these are before God, these created beings, the four living creatures, the elders, the angels, all of them, the the martyred saints before the throne of God, recognizing moment by moment the things that God has done in their life, praising His name, thanking God for what they have experienced. But then we come to the 13th verse. And as we come to verse 13, I find this to be one of the most comforting passages in Scripture because it talks about those who are saved from the cares of this world. 
In verse 13, it says this, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Who are those in the white robes, and from where have they come? This is an elder asking John. It's a rhetorical question because the elder knows full well who they are and where they've come from. But John responds, I said to him, sir, you know. Now, this is a figure of speech in the first century that would roughly be rendered, I have no idea, but you can tell me. That's sort of the idea that's being expressed here. And then the elder expresses to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Isn't that a beautiful passage? This passage is telling us of those who have found a personal relationship with God the same way we find our relationship with God, and that is by having the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us to wash away our sin and to make us pure and righteous before holy God. These tribulation saints who have been martyred and died for their faith are now rejoicing. No more suffering, no more difficulty. Before the throne of God, praising Him, worshiping Him with all that they have. And I love the part of this passage that says, their robes have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. No sin is too great for Christ to cleanse. No sin can overcome the grace of God expressed in Christ Jesus. Though our spiritual clothing is sullied as we go through this world and through this life, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we can stand before Him washed white as snow cleansed of our sin. These people in heaven realize this very well. But you know, this idea of the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us is found many times in the New Testament. A couple of examples, first of all, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, speaking of our faith, it says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Listen, the idea is this. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us. Nothing that I do, no material thing that I might acquire makes me right with God. Earlier, the saints said, before God, salvation belongs to our God. Salvation comes only through God's provision, and that provision is the blood of Jesus Christ. So because of the blood of Christ, we can be cleansed, we can be made right with God. We can experience that forgiveness, that release from sin. These are those who are experiencing that before the throne of God. But then we also find in the book of Revelation, this in the first chapter, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins 
by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Starting out the book of Revelation, the blood of Jesus Christ is what makes us who we are in right standing before a holy God. But then the text goes on. After it talks about this cleansing from the blood of Jesus Christ, notice it goes on to say this, verse 15. Therefore, in other words, because they have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. That deliverance to the presence of God is described for us. Look at verse 16. They shall hunger no more. Now, I would submit to you this group of people that's being described knew what it was to hunger. When we look at the disastrous things that took place in the tribulation, the famine, the terrible things that were unleashed on the world, they would have known hunger. Many of them, as we'll see later, were not able to buy or sell because of the beast and because of their persecution. They were hiding and experiencing the terrible things that come upon Mankind, but in the presence of God, there is no more hunger. They are satisfied. It says further, neither shall they thirst anymore. There won't be that hunger and thirst that comes with famine and drought and the terrible judgments that unfold during the tribulation. Then it goes on to say, the sun shall not strike them nor scorching heat. All of the things that people in the first century would have understood very well. You get stuck out in the elements in the ancient Near East during John's time. If you're hungry and thirsty and you have the sun beating down on your head in the desert, that's misery. You know what it is to suffer. He is expressing to us that those who have come before the throne of God, delivered by the blood of the Lamb, there is no more suffering. You know, when I think about this passage, I think about loved ones who are in the presence of God. No more thirst, no more hunger, no more suffering. They're delivered. Their salvation has been brought to the place to where they experience the fullness of what Christ saved them to experience. These tribulation saints went through a rough patch during the tribulation, but is put away from them. They are now in the presence of God, under His presence, under His protection. I love the way it's framed in verse 15. They are sheltered with His presence so that none of these things can happen to them. And then look at verse 17. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a beautiful part of the passage? The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in close fellowship with them, shepherding them, providing for them the living water, that which satisfies. When we look in the Gospel of John, We saw Jesus speaking with a woman at the well, and He had promised her living water. 
We know as we read that passage that Jesus was speaking of Himself, the one who completely satisfies. What this is saying is this, there will be no longer sin or any of the things that, that, that keep us from experiencing the beauty and the wonder of the living water, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we will be with Him. We will see Him face to face. We will not experience the horrors or the terrible things of this world. And I love the part where it says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more sorrow. No more pain. Only the presence of God. Now, while this passage applies specifically to the tribulation saints who have been martyred are now in the presence of God, there is a broader application in Scripture that we find for all who have trusted Christ as their Savior. This hope is held out for us. For those of you who have lost loved ones, this glimmer of hope that we find here in Scripture is comforting. For those of you who face death, and the day of your death is closer than the day of your birth by quite a lot, There's hope. We have this to look forward to. Let me encourage you this morning. God's grace is operative, but it's only something that benefits us while we live. If we spurn the grace of God, none of the things that are promised in this passage of Scripture, chapter 7, No more thirst, no more hunger, no more scorching sun. God will wipe away every tear. Those things are not available to a person unless they have come by the blood of the Lamb. The question we must ask is this, how do we come by the blood of the Lamb? We come by the blood of the Lamb by trusting that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to pay for my sin. That He is my hope of deliverance from this world into eternal life. The Scripture says in the Gospel of John, same author as the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. So when we believe that Jesus is sufficient to pay for our sins, and we place our faith in Him, we enter into that right relationship with God. We have our robes cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. My hope and my prayer is this, that everybody here will have experienced that before they die. Because here's the important thing. We either find Christ as Savior and allow the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse our robes and make them white that we could stand before a holy God or we face Him as judge. And we are told that we did not get cleansed by the blood because we never trusted Him. God's grace is there. It's there for everyone and anyone. But that grace must be received by faith. Paul writes to the Ephesians very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 8, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, 
So faith is that arm that reaches out and takes grace. It's not a result of works. It is us trusting God, taking Him at His word, and receiving the free gift of salvation that He offers in Christ Jesus. The grace of God, operative, beautiful, there in the worst of times to bring us into the best of times. As a believer, rejoice in what God has provided. And if you've never come to that place to where you know where you stand with God, I would love the chance to talk with you. Dan would love the chance to talk with you. TJ as well. Any one of us would rejoice in the opportunity to talk with you about how you can know that you will be standing with those described in this passage from the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the hope that it gives us. God, may each of us understand afresh the great gift of salvation given by Your grace. Lord, if there is one who does not know You this morning or where they stand in regard to You, God, give them the courage to come and talk to one of us about that. And God, I pray for those who are believers. May we not be entrapped in the things of this world because there are so many more wonderful things that lie ahead for the follower of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.